0: Our topic, solemn fasting, we're looking at the occasional elements of worship, and we're going to look at solemn fasting, so everything you wanted to know about fasting, uh, you're going to learn today, uh, it's quite comprehensive look, our text is going to be Isaiah 58, and you'll see why, beginning at verse 3, <clears throat> I'll begin at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to show my to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted? They say, and you have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure, and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. And to strike with a fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Why would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? And we'll stop there, we can go on, but that's false fasting, and we'll look at that a little bit later. So another occasional element of worship is religious fasting, or fasting fasting for the purpose of repentance or drawing near to God in prayer. Fasting is a form of drawing close to Yahweh, as a form of drawing close to Yahweh is rare in our day among evangelicals, well, even Reformed churches, perhaps due to the great abuses of fasting often connected to asceticism in the papal church. In order to define biblical fasting and understand its purpose and importance, we need to examine a number of areas related to this topic. First, we need to know what biblical fasting is not. And I only bring up this point briefly because of the popularity of certain charismatic authors and such that have made a whole industry out of so-called biblical fasting for health reasons. Solemn fasting for sanctification purposes is not related at all to seeking physical health benefits such as losing weight or cleansing the body of toxins. Now people fast for those reasons, but that's not biblical fasting. There have been certain professing Christian authors that have asserted such things, but they have presented no solid exegetical evidence. It's a gimmick. They sell a lot of books, they make a lot of money. Uh, but it's it's not based on scripture, so it's generally worthless. <clears throat> there are some who appeal to Daniel and his comrades, refusing to eat the king's delicacies, and instead only eating a vegetarian diet. That would be uh, Daniel one eight to sixteen. The King James version says "pult," um, and it refers to foods derived from things grown from seed. It would not only include vegetables but also legumes. Uh, beans, lentils, garbanzos, as well as wheat and barley. He wouldn't eat the king's meat, wouldn't drink the king's wine, but he ate things from seed. The context, however, indicates that the issue was one of ritual uncleanness. This is Daniel one eight a He would not defile himself for the portions of the king's delicacies. Defile. That means um, it is likely that the king's meat was not properly drained of its blood. See Leviticus 17, 10 to 14. The Jews were not allowed to eat meat without the blood being properly drained. Today, the Jews call that kosher meat. And the king's food and wine was offered or dedicated to idols. Very common among ancient pagan societies, very common even in uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, There'd be a meat market. The meat market might be dedicated to Zeus or Astra. And they would dedicate the meat to a god and they would make offerings and so forth. Very common. The better appearance of Daniel and his friends only ten days after, and it says in Daniel 1.15, better and fatter in flesh, because remember the, the kings all, the people in their society were worried that if eating this diet they were going to be unhealthy, um, was likely... Due to supernatural intervention, not due to the benefits of a vegetarian diet, for someone to eat seeds and and things from plants and look better in only ten days uh, is probably miraculous. So, biblical fasting must not be confused with abstaining from food on account of a great uh, on account of great emotional distress. For example, Hannah was exceptionally upset because she could not bear children and thus wept and did not eat. 1 Samuel 1, 1.7 Now her situation of eventually led her to seek out God, <clears throat> but not eating due to emotional distress is not religious fasting. And we're going to see fasting is always, virtually always coupled with prayer. In 1 Kings one four, wicked King Ahab was so upset, angry and displeased that Naboth would not sell him his vineyard, he would eat no bread. Jonathan was so upset that his father was seeking to kill David that he ate no food the second day of the month. 2 Samuel 20, verse 34. You know, it's possible he was praying, but we don't know. Fasting could accompany great sorrow. David refused to eat for a whole day upon the death of Abner. 2 Samuel 3.35. <clears throat> and there's a passage in, uh, where uh, after uh, Saul, King Saul is killed, uh, people from his town. Uh, the men f- didn't eat for like a week or something. I forget. I think we'll consider that passage later. Second, so that's what fasting is not. Second, we would do well to understand the appropriate occasions for religious fasting from historical examples in Scripture. Okay, fasting is only commanded uh, related to the Day of Atonement. We'll look at that in a moment. So, really, the only way to really learn about fasting is to look at historical examples. Number one, the most common occasion for fasting was during confessions of sin and times of repentance. Let me read some passages. Nehemiah 9, 1-3 says this, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth, and with dust on their heads. (coughs) Then those of the Israelite lineage (coughs) separated themselves from all foreigners, And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now it is noteworthy that the whole congregation confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. Their ancestors. <clears throat> they understood the descending obligation of the covenant, and their covenantal solidarity with past generations. Our present culture and ethical state as a nation is due to apostasy and rebellion of not only this wicked generation, but also previous rebellious generations. By confessing sins of the prior generation, in addition to our own, we acknowledge and confess the full source of declension and apostasy. The United States is an extremely wicked state today with this transgendered stuff and sodomite marriage and all these cr- things. And it's just insanity. And basically, the legalization of crime. <clears throat> but this goes back to problems stemming from first our Constitution and then, especially, the rise of secular humanism. Biblical prayer is rooted in biblical theology <clears throat> and is comprehensive, dealing with multi generational sins and defections. Until modern Christians in the United States acknowledge the great sin of our founding fathers in not explicitly recognizing Jesus Christ as the only Lord over America and establishing Bible-believing Protestant Christianity as the official only recognized religion in this nation, the cultural, ethical, and spiritual rot among our political leadership will continue. And a good example of this, of course, is uh, somebody like Glenn Beck, who... uh, worships our Constitution and is totally pluralistic. And that's true of Sean Hannity and all these people. It's idolatry. If you practice idolatry and you condone idolatry, you're going to have serious problems. And that's the problem with our Constitution. In Joel 2.12 to 13, God commands repentance with fasting. (coughs) Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So if you repent, you sincerely repent, and you fast and mourn over your sin, God will relent from the judgment. Daniel fasted when he confessed Israel's sins and prayed for the covenant people to acknowledge their sin. This is Daniel 9, 2-7. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting... Sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us shame a face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which you have co- they have committed against you. Amazing. Now there are some things recorded in these in other passages that merit our attention. A and you're going to notice this fasting is often accompanied by wearing sackcloth and putting ashes or dust on one's head sackcloth was the garments people would wear when they were mourning for a close relative or someone they loved who died the sackcloth and dust were supposed to be outward signs of an eternal heart sorrow for sin humiliation and genuine repentance. Some scholars view the use of ashes or dust as an outward sign of our frailty before God. As humans, we are finite, mortal, and can easily succumb to accidents, violence, or disease. Consequently, we appeal to God's mercy and grace to guide, protect, and nurture us in both body and soul. When you die, you return to the dust. You return to ashes. And we find that in funeral comments made today and dust to dust, ashes to ashes and so forth it's a sign of our our frailty our our finiteness before God in our confession of sin there is an acknowledgement that we are unworthy to receive divine mercy but God is faithful and just in forgiving our sins due to the Savior's expiatory sacrifice on our behalf on the cross now by the time of the life of Christ <clears throat> this outward practice had become a formal ritual used by the Pharisees and their followers to draw attention to their supposed great piety. Okay, they would let themselves be undone and have ashes on their face and so everybody could look at them and see how pious they were. <clears throat> Such behavior completely contradicts the humility and self-abasement aspect of fasting and therefore was forbidden by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six sixteen to 18 a When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. So don't walk around with your hair all messed up and your face covered in ashes. Wash your face Comb your hair, anoint your head. God knows you're fasting. Everybody in town doesn't need to know you're fasting. So that aspect, the sackcloth and ashes aspect, no longer is applicable in the New Covenant era. And then B, and this is quite obvious. Genuine fasting must be accompanied with a sincere internal change of mind concerning sin. Joel 2.12, rend your heart, not your garments. Okay, with religion, with biblical religion, there's always the temptation to externalize everything and do things outwardly but not be sincere. The Jews were experts at this and Roman Catholics are experts at this <clears throat> So there's to be a sincere change of mind concerning sin with the fruits of repentance or outward acts of putting off sin and putting on righteousness uh, corresponding righteous corresponding behaviors. The Jews who had intermingled with the heathen, had to put away their foreign wives. Nehemiah thirteen, twenty-three to thirty. <coughs> if one fast yet had no intention of putting off sinful behaviors, his fasting is insincere and worthless. And this point is brought out in Isaiah 58, where God through the prophet rebukes the Jews for fasting while serving explicit illicit pleasures, exploiting their laborers, engaging in heated exchanges and violence, verses three to four. In verses 6 through 9 we read, But this is not the fast that I have chosen, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring your house, uh, to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, that, that your light shall break forth like the morning and healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. So, a sinful area must be replaced with its righteous counterpart. J. Adams talks about that very good. uh, Paul, in Ephesians 4, when he talks about sanctification. Put away lying, speak the truth in love. Stop stealing, get a good job so you have enough money not only to pay for your own bills and have a place to live, but that you can help the poor. Fasting must be always be accompanied by biblical repentance which is inward with fruits of repentance. <clears throat> Fasting, which is a form of self-humiliation and abasement must be coupled with real acts of repentance. <clears throat> When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and fully understood the wickedness and gravity of his sins, he did not eat or drink for three days. Acts nine nine. In the passage to memor I think everybody should memorize this passage, it's wonderful. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. God knows all. You can't fool God. You can put the con on people, but you can't put a con on God. And then number two. Fasting can not only accompany mourning over one's own sins and covenant unfaithfulness, but also over serious personal, national, or ecclesiastical disasters or dangers. When Haman's plan to annihilate the Jews, was made a written decree by the king. The Jews in mass responded with fasting. Esther 4.3.15-16. We read this. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast also. And so will I go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Okay, in the Persian law, if the king made a decree, it could not be changed. And if you tried to change it, if you approached the king, it was the death penalty. So she's going to go against that because she didn't have any choice. God had providentially placed Esther in a position to appeal to the king, even though the appeal was unlawful, according to the laws of Persia. By the way, as a side note, this proves that uh, Romans 13 doesn't mean you submit to every unlawful or absurd rule of a, a civil government. She disobeyed it because it was wrong. From a human perspective, the situation looked impossible. What can be done? Therefore, they knew that their only hope of deliverance was in God's hands. Consequently, they joined fasting and outside signs of humility with fervent prayer. Esther, God's providential queen, God placed her there for a reason, to save the Jews. She was a godly woman, who was in a civil position, asked Mordecai, who's a prophet, who's a religious leader among the people, to proclaim a fast among the people. When King David's child, through Uriah's wife, was gravely ill, David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground, 2 Samuel 12, 16. His fasting was obviously intended to make his petitions more effectual. When the, from another passage, we learn that he fasted for seven whole days. When the child died, indicating that his prayers were not answered, he immediately ceased fasting. He, he stopped fasting at once. God did not answer his prayers. It was a judgment. <clears throat> In a time of war, the whole nation was called to a fast with fervent prayer, burnt offerings and peace offerings, judges 2026. 20, when King Jehoshaphat was afraid because of the great number of enemies, enemy forces arrayed against Judah, he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed to fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. The civil magistrate had the authority, under the appropriate conditions, to proclaim a national fast. So the purpose of fasting was not only to show humility before God, a mourning over and despising of one's sins before Yahweh, but also to be focused and wholly dedicated to spiritual exercises. It appears that the people gathered at the temple for public worship. The sacrifice is pointed directly to Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice for sin. And as we know, all worship has to be offered to God through Christ, for it's unacceptable, because <clears throat> we're rotten, filthy sinners, and Christ is perfectly righteous and just. In Joel 1.13-14, 1, 1, God had the priests consecrate a fast in order to deal with the divine judgment of pestilence. One four locusts, one seventeen to twenty drought. Severe drought and severe locusts. And in an agricultural society, that means death, starvation. It's a complete disaster. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The crops had failed to the point that they didn't have enough grain for a drink offering, I mean, for a grain offering, and they didn't have enough grapes for a drink offering. It could not be made. In this passage, we have a situation where the national fast begins with the priests. They are to fast themselves, And then they are to set in motion a national fast by approaching the civil magistrate or elders of the people. They convene the meeting of the elders, the representatives of the nation, so that the whole covenant community can be summoned to humble themselves, fast, and appear before God in public worship. When there are national judgments due to sin, which is obviously a national calamity, a national emergency, Church authorities can call the civil magistrates to act. It's not a violation of the separation of the biblical separation of the spheres of the civil magistrate and the ecclesiastical government. For the religious leaders are calling for a special gathering for worship in a time of crisis. They are not dealing with civil matters or criminal law. This historical example could only be applied to, to a Christian nation... A people who are willing to acknowledge and confess their sin to the true God through Jesus Christ. Once again, we see that religious fasting is connected with repentance and fervent prayer. And you can see it's an act of worship. There's a call to fast, there's a call to worship, there's a call to prayer. Fasting and fervent prayer is not only appropriate in times of judgment, war, calamity, but also in times of great danger. As we noted, Jehoshaphat proclaimed to fast throughout all Judah when with, with a great army from Moab, Ammon, and the Ammonites or Edom came to conquer Judah, 2 Chronicles 21-13. When Jehoiakim heard that God's judgment was coming upon Judah, Jeremiah 36, 1-3, he proclaimed to fast in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Jerusalem to, of Judah to Jerusalem, Jeremiah 36, 9-10. When Ezra was about to lead the covenant people back to the promised land from exile. He stopped at the river Ahava and proclaimed a fast for safe passage, and literally in Hebrew, for the right way, for everyone's safety, Ezra eight twenty-one to 23. And Nehemiah fasted over the sad and dangerous state of those who came back to Jerusalem from captivity, Nehemiah 1, 3 to 11. They're there, they're surrounded by enemies, the walls, they don't have any walls. The only way to protect yourself from attacks was to have walls. They were totally vulnerable, so it called for a fast. In addition, the fast proclaimed under Ezra, I mean Esther and Mordecai that we already looked at was to prevent annihilation, 4, 3, and 15, 16, before it happened. <clears throat> now, biblical fasting assumes the Christian world and life view which sees everything in creation is absolutely controlled by God and under his authority. Secular humanism, or atheistic naturalism, posits a chance universe where there are no fixed ethics and there can be no judgment against sin. Consequently, the idea of fasting coupled with prayer and repentance to avoid calamity is anathema to the secularists. They hate it. They despise it. Great national calamities are seen as the result of pure chance, the unfolding of a meaningless, impersonal universe. Therefore, and uh, if you're old enough to remember this, uh, my kids were small at the time, when a few prominent ministers, I know one of them was Billy Graham's son, suggested that the, uh, I think another was Jerry Falwell, suggested that the terrorist acts of 9-11 may be the judgment of God on our nation for its wickedness, They were met with anger and scorn, and most of them backed down, unfortunately, to suggest it was an act of judgment. How dare you? How dare you say such a thing? Second humanists deny God and his law. As apostate men, they hold a position of supreme arrogance. Man is ultimate, and man alone is the source of ethics and meaning. Such thinking now dominates Western thought. But as Christians, we understand that all reality is revelational of Yahweh and can only be understood in terms of him and his word. Therefore, serious Christians must be humble and must be willing to apply fasting to appropriate situations as we are taught in God's word. Admit something's a judgment of God and do the appropriate thing. Now, that's not going to happen in our society. And you read the book of Revelation the people who worship the beast who worship the civil government as God uh, when the judgments fall they don't repent they become even more self-deceived and more foolish. Number three and this is critical the only annual that is repeating regular day of fasting authorized in the Old Testament was associated with the day of atonement. And this is from Leviticus sixteen twenty nine to 30 <clears throat> This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before God. The study of self-affliction was a permanent rule of the Old Covenant Church. It occurred according to the lunar calendar. Their calendar was different than ours. It would always fall in either late September or the early part of October. The expression, afflict your souls, is rare in Scripture, yet it is crucial in understanding biblical fasting. It is found in Leviticus 23, 27, and 32, Numbers 29, 7, regarding the Day of Atonement, Isaiah 58.3, where it is associated with fasting very clearly, that we, we read. Psalm 35.13, where it is connected to fasting again, mourning or sorrow, self-examination, and prayer. The phrase "inna rifez nephez expresses the withholding of all food from one's soul. uh King James Version in verses 29 to 31, afflict your souls translated as afflict your souls, that is the principle of life that constitutes one as a person and enables one to act. Such abstinence, as it were, exerts pressure on the soul. And it's from the cal form of inah, which means to be bowed down, which causes it to suffer in a certain way. This intensifies a person's awareness that he has not acted in accordance with the Lord's demands, and that he stands in need of atonement, For having fallen short in his manner of life. Because the word fast is not directly used. But all the Jewish interpreters and all the Christian interpreters interpret affliction of souls as referring to fasting. Now, and we saw it's associated with fasting both in Isaiah 58 and Psalm 35. And then we know that that that's how the Jews interpret it. The self-affliction of believers... Well, the fact that the Day of Atonement is the only commanded, that is it's it's not an occasional day, it's not it's not it's not voluntary, it's involuntary. Day of fasting is significant. The Jewish tradition, and this would be the Mishnah, Cedar Olam Rabbah uh, C six nineteen the Jewish tradition regarding the affliction of one soul on the day of atonement is very interesting. On the day of atonement there could be no eating or drinking, washing, anointing of skin, wearing of shoes or sandals or the use of a bed. This refers not simply to sleep but to the pleasures of the lawful marital relations. Fasting did not apply to small children, but they were to be trained so that as soon as they were understood the meaning and purpose of the atonement they could participate. Okay, so they didn't apply it to babies and toddlers, obviously. Now, the Apostle Paul agrees that lawful sexual pleasures must be avoided during a period of self-affliction. 1 Corinthians seven five: Do not deprive one another. Okay, and it's in a section dealing with sexual temptations. And his, 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 the solution to sexual temptations is to get married and have sex with either your wife or husband. Um. <clears throat> don't deprive one another except consent for a time, with consent for a time, that is both have to agree that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So the only time there should be an agreement not to do it is during fasting and prayer. So he teaches that normal marital sexual relations must be maintained except when there is a mutual agreement to set aside a time for fasting and prayer. Now prayer by itself is not hindered by normal marital relations. You can have that every day and you can pray every day, obviously. But it is inconsistent with the affliction of one's soul, which is the purpose of fasting. Now this teaching must not be confused with Neoplatonism or Romanist concepts of asceticism and slavery, I mean uh, celibacy, where the Romanists thought that abstaining from sex was the the best thing for man and they taught the priest should not get married and nuns and people take a vow of celibacy. That's all nonsense. It's all unscriptural, and it leads to sin. The rates of homosexuality among Roman Catholic priests is very high. And you read about them molesting children a lot and things like that because it's not natural, for, unless a man has a gift of celibacy, which is very rare, it's not natural for men to not have a wife. Men should have wives, and when they need to be satisfied, they need to go to their wives. So I thought that was interesting. Now, as we know, the Lord got rid of those things, the aspects of the sackcloth and ashes and all that. The fact that the Day of the Atonement is the only commanded, that is, involuntary uh, day of fasting, is significant. (coughs) Prior to the destruction of the Temple in AD 70, the Jews viewed fasting as something allied with blood sacrifice. And we saw many passages where it was tied to public worship at the temple which involved sacrifices which pointed to Christ. With the end of the sacrificial system, the pharisaical work salvation concept of the Old Testament became even more pronounced and fasting was held to be expiatory. They viewed fasting as a way to remove sins. Others taught that it was expiatory only when it was held in conjunction with almsgiving. And this is from the Mishnah uh, TV uh, B-E-R 6A. They did still hold that fasting and confession of sins was of no value without a corresponding change of behavior. And that's also in the the Mishnah. (coughs) Without the sacrificial system, the Jews held, and they still hold this, to the view that the best method of expiation of sin is through the amendment of conduct in accordance with the Torah. The Christian view... That true faith is always accompanied by a genuine change of mind regarding sin, but that it is Christ's sacrificial death that washes away sin and his imputed righteousness that saves. That's a Christian view. One's change of life to a habitual obedience to God's moral law or covenant faithfulness is a fruit of salvation. Learn that. It's a fruit of salvation, not a source, not a foundation, like in Mormonism or as Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Jews, or a co-foundation, or co-source, which is what is taught among Roman Catholics and the Federal Vision. So I just thought that was interesting. The self-affliction of believers is not meritorious, but rather emphasizes that we have no claim on God and can never regenerate or justify ourselves before him. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Well, what does the ashes and dust represent and the sackcloth represent? Our deadness and inability before God. We are justified solely due to the perfect, sufficient, once for all sacrifice, sacrificial death of Christ. Hebrews 9 11 to 12, 24 to 28, 10, 12 to 14, etc. The point of fasting is not to show God how pious we are and deserving of hell, but rather indicates our total dependence on God's sovereign grace and mercy. The apostate Jews and Muslims perverted it into a kind of self-atonement. And the Muslims, especially the ones in Iran, they go so far, the the Shiites, they they not only fast, but they make whips, and they afflict their bodies with whips, like Roman Catholic monks in the Middle Ages, until they draw blood from their backs. You can go on YouTube and see this footage. Self-atonement. There is no such thing as self-atonement. We're totally dependent on Christ and his precious blood, not on our own. We can't save ourselves. We contribute nothing to Christ's perfect work of atonement. We must look to it by faith and trust in the Savior's redeeming work as perfectly sufficient, as Paul says. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This total dependence on Jesus makes perfect sense, for all of our works are to be regarded as filthy rags in comparison to our Lord's righteousness. Philippians 3.8 And of course there's the passage in Isaiah. And even our best works Jesus taught us are tainted with sin. Luke 17.10 Rather than viewing fasting as meritorious, which is kind of a Roman Catholic and a Jewish and uh, Muslim view, <coughs> We must see it as acknowledging our helplessness before God. It is an action of self-denial, humility and abasement. Even in the task of corporate sanctification, covenant faithfulness and progressive growth in righteousness, there is a complete complete reliance on the efficacy of Jesus redemptive work. With repentance or a change of mind regarding God, Christ and sin, we renounce sin in the world. We pick up our cross daily. Matthew 16.24, Mark 8.34 and 10.21, and die to self, Matthew 10.39 and Luke 17.33. Fasting is a potent act symbolizing death to self in order to live consistently as new creatures in new creations or new creatures in Christ. Remember, the wearing of sackcloth was the traditional funeral garb of mourning among the Jews. The ashes are dust on the head pointing to our fragile mortal nature. Our only hope is to place all of our faith in Christ and beseech God to enable us to be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. Although at the finished work of Christ there is no longer an authorized day where fasting is required, nevertheless, fasting continues and its meaning and purpose remains the same. Humility, a rejection of self-salvation, or syncretism, an acknowledgement of total dependence on God coupled with a dying to self or a sincere heart repentance. And then number four. Fasting was used in the New Covenant Church for the advancement of the gospel in Christ's kingdom on earth. Listen to this. This is Acts thirteen two to 3 As they, and this is the prophets and teachers at Antioch, Antioch was the great mission center that sent out preachers to cover the Greeks and the Romans. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. The choosing of capable and godly men and their task of preaching the gospel and planting churches in new areas is so important, and also at that time it was quite dangerous, that their prayers were accompanied by fasting. Religious fasting is of use in our, in our ministering to the Lord, both as a sign of our humiliation and a means of our mortification. Though it was not practiced by the apostles when they were with Christ, while the bridegroom was with them, Matthew 9, 14-15, Mark 2, 18-19, and Luke 5, 33-34. Remember the disciples of John? Asked, hey, how come your disciples aren't fasting? Well, they, they were with the bridegroom. Once Christ departed to heaven, and they began fasting quite a bit. Yet after the bridegroom was taken away, they abounded in it, as those who had well learned to deny themselves and to endure hardness. Fasting with prayer and worship is wise prior to any crucial kingdom work by the church. Now Jesus, as you all know, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights prior to the beginning of his official ministry. This deprivation could not be for sin or for repentance. He was the sinless son of God. He never committed sin. But was at least, in part, the Savior asking for assistance by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his mission on earth. This fast, however, I think was unique in that it also served as a test for Christ so as the second Adam had to endure the temptations of Satan to abandon his mission. Adam, while surrounded by paradise, surrounded by fruit trees, and food, abundance, failed. But our Redeemer, the second Adam, endured the test while in the pangs of severe hunger in the barren wilderness. And then number five. Religious fasting is clearly a mark of dedication to God and Christian piety. Paul was commended as a genuine minister of God, not only for his suffering for the gospel and purity of life, but also his fastings. 2 Corinthians 6.5 John the Baptist taught us disciples to fast frequently. Mark 2.18 and Luke 5.33 as an aid in sanctification or self mortification. The godly widow Anna who was around 84 years old did <coughs> excuse me <coughs> did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night. Night and day Luke 2.37 Although fasting is not a weekly or a regular aspect of worship, it is obviously important in a Christian's quest for personal and corporate godliness. Fasting is appropriate and necessary in times of backsliding, declension, persecution, and national or ecclesiastical crisis. Fasting must arise out of a a biblical inward spiritual desire that is a mourning over sin, a personal corporate crisis, a desire for biblical leadership, and the increase of solid Christian churches, an earnest seeking of divine help and favor regarding moral, spiritual, and doctrinal attainments, etc. And then third. So those are the historical examples and discussion of them with some application thrown in. Here's third. There are some other things about fasting that merit our attention. Number one. As an occasional element of worship, it is wrong for church authorities to command weekly or even regularly yearly seasons of fasting. The Pharisees required fasting twice a week, and they bragged about it, Luke 18, 12. They turned a special occasional element into a weekly obligation, and they don't have that authority. Unfortunately, as Christian churches abandoned the regular principle of worship, began to drift toward the oppression in apostasy of Romanism, they made Wednesdays and Fridays days of fasting. This eventually applied only to Fridays, and then became only a partial fast, no meat allowed. And I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, <coughs> we were not allowed to have meat on Fridays. We were allowed to have fish, and we ate a lot of pizza with olives and mushrooms or cheese pizza, no meat. I think that's been, I don't even think they do that anymore. Such fasting is not required by Scripture and thus violates the purpose of fasting. God does not accept man made laws and traditions, they are unacceptable to Him. Civil authorities, elders, pastors, teachers have no authority to make up rules for the church. Now, there's something circumstantial. They can say, well, we're going to have a presbytery meeting. Why don't we have it on October the 13th on a Friday at 10 a.m.? And then everybody goes, okay, I think that's a good idea. They can do things like that, but they can't say, oh, we're going to start fasting every Wednesday, or we have to fast twice a year, and here's the dates. Now, if there's a crisis, a general assembly or a presbytery or whatever can say, this is happening, we're having a, you know, an epidemic or something, Let's, let's have a voluntary fast on this day, and everybody can fast. That's one thing, but it's voluntary, that they cannot command particular days of fasting. Number two, there are different kinds of fasting as well as different durations. <coughs> there are one-day fasts, day until evening, or morning until evening, Judges 20-26, 2 Samuel one There are three-day fasts, both day and night, Esther 4.16, and seven-day fasts, the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead after the death of Saul for Samuel 31.13, and King David, while his child was seriously ill, 2 Samuel 12.16-18. Now Moses went without food or water for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain when he was waiting to receive the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34.28, Deuteronomy 9.9. This was obviously an exceptional case where God intervened supernaturally. For somebody who has meat on him, they can go without food for 40 days, but you can't go without water for 40 days and live. You will die. God had to sustain him supernaturally. Jesus fasted for 40 days. Um, Matthew 4.2, Luke 4.2, in those days he ate Nothing. Without any miraculous intervention, he drank water, but he, he did not eat food. This also seems to be a unique case related to his test in the wilderness <clears throat> in extreme cases of fasting, one does not partake of either food or water, but those are no that the very those are not that long. This kind of fasting is for severe situations can only be for short periods of time. For a while, we can go many days without food. We can go only a very short time without water. While it is true, as we noted, that Moses went without food and water for 40 days, as we noted, that was a supernatural thing of God. He was upheld by the miraculous power of God. And then number three, and this is critical. Fasting is virtually always associated with prayer and often assumes that a deeper covenant relationship with God is being sought. Fasting and prayer go together. If the fasting and prayer is not related to great danger or a crisis, like war, famine, or pestilence, it is usually connected to repentance and a confession of sin, and we saw that. Fasting is connected to a faith-directed, fervent, unrelenting, persevering prayer in Matthew 17, 19-21. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Biblical faith implies a complete trust and dependence upon God. The disciples did not have the faith to draw on God's power in this difficult case. And if you read the context, it was a very difficult case of demon possession. The solution was to fast and pray and draw near to God, and thus depend solely upon him and his infinite power. (coughs) Fasting doesn't give you any more power. All the power comes from God. The point is, is for them to increase their faith. The self-denial of fasting is to be used to help our intercession and petitions to God. Fasting helps us understand our weaknesses and inability. It serves to cast us before God's throne as helpless beggars in the dust. Fasting is of use to put an edge upon prayer. It is an evidence, an instance of humiliation, which is necessary in prayer and is a means of mortifying some corrupt habits and of disposing the body to serve the soul in prayer. Remember, we're not saved by faith. We're saved through faith. It's instrumental. Even a weak faith can save before Christ is the Savior. We're saved by Christ. We're not saved by our faith. But fasting helps us because it's an act of humiliation. It's an act of self-negation. An act of regarding ourselves as dead before God and total dependence upon Him. Once again, it's not meritorious. It's not, look at me fasting. I'm great. Answer my prayers. It's, self-abasement, Lord, I'm depending totally and solely upon you. For those difficult areas, fervent prayer coupled with diligent self-mortification is often necessary. True faith expresses itself in prayer and manifests itself itself in self-denial. Biblical fasting is very useful for Christians who begin to trust too much in themselves and too little in Jesus when they suffer temptations or afflictions. You're suffering. You've been afflicted. You've got a problem. Something terrible's happened. That's when you need to depend on God and Christ the most. And fasting helps you do that. In our day of widespread church declension and apostasy, where many confessing evangelical churches are entertainment centers first and places of biblical worship last, There needs to be repentance, a mourning over sin, coupled with fervent prayer and fasting. The source of so much corruption today in churches comes from an arrogant humanism, which applies human autonomy and pragmatism to doctrine, church government, and worship. Biblical fasting with prayer reveals humility and a sincere desire to disregard self and the flesh and depend solely on God and his perfect inspired word for doctrine, ethics, sanctification, and worship. <clears throat> at a time when most professing Christians cannot define the gospel or even recite the Ten Commandments. I'm serious. There was a, I saw R.C. Sproul Jr. speak many, many years ago, like 20, 25 years ago. And he, they were at a book conference, and they went around asking people to recite the Ten Commandments. These are evangelicals. People don't know the Ten Commandments. People don't know the Lord's Prayer. People, when I was going door-to-door a lot when I was church planting, I was going door-to-door almost 40 hours a week. And people, I would add, you know, people didn't know what the Gospel was. Evangelicals didn't know what the Gospel was. It has something to do with Jesus. (laughs) Fasting and prayer for Reformation and Revival is sorely needed today. On a personal level, fasting and fervent prayer must be used for severe trials, temptations, and problems sinful areas. Fasting and prayer will not heal us, but will draw us closer to God who can and will heal us. Remember, it's God. God has the power. Fasting and prayer is appropriate for national emergencies, calamities, and judgments from God. But it cannot be an idolatrous, pagan, pluralistic appeal from a secular, humanistic civil magistrate, like a Joe Biden or a Obama. If it is not directed to Yahweh, the one and only living, and true God, through Jesus Christ, it will do no more. It will do more harm than good because it's it's phony. I was watching on YouTube, and Joe Biden had a thing for Ramadan in the White House. And he's bowing his head as as this uh, satanic Muslim cleric prays to the moon god, not through Christ. They reject Christ as Savior. They reject Christ as God. He's only a prophet. Folks, that's blasphemous. That's wicked. That's idolatry. At the current time, Christian communions must fast and focus on the preservation of the Reformation the Protestant Reformation, and a revival of biblical Christianity in our land. Without it, our nation will continue its moral and spiritual decline and will eventually be plowed under the iron blades of judgment. And we'll end there. So I hope you learned a lot about fasting. Very important topic, a very neglected topic. I've never been in a church that called for a day of fasting, ever. Ever. I've never been in, a, I've been in the OPC, the PCA, and the RPCNA, and a, and a few micro-denominations. I've never been in a denomination that called for a day of fasting. Now, the old Covenanters uh, would call for, this, the general, the Synod would call for a day of fasting uh, to confess sins and so forth. That was, that was pretty common. It would happen you know, yearly. Uh, it would not be a set thing that they had to do, but it would be a voluntary thing. But we don't see that today. Yet we need it today more than ever. So meditate on fasting, biblical fasting. Meditate on it and use it when you need to at the appropriate times. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this occasional element of worship. Let us not neglect it. Let us study it. Let us learn from it and use it appropriately. For we are sinners, saved solely by your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We are in need of your salvation. We depend not on ourselves. We are as dust in your sight. It is Christ who is righteous. It is Christ who has removed our sins. So we thank you for that, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.